welcome to The Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView, and your host today, Tuesday, June 23, 2022. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcast, please visit our website. And if you can, support us on Substack. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. My guest today for our 32nd episode of The Hale Report is Phil Levy, who's speaking to us from the San Francisco area, where he recently had to evacuate due to wildfires. Phil, we are grateful that you are doing okay and appreciate very much that you're able to join us today. Welcome to The Hale Report. Thank you very much. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Dr. Phil Levy is chief economist at Flexport, where he leads qualitative and quantitative economic research informed by public policy developments, of which there have been many lately, and proprietary data. He holds a PhD in economics from Stanford University. Dr. Levy's research informs the market on global trade trends and helps Flexport teams make product and business strategy decisions to best serve their clients. Before Flexport, Dr. Levy spent two decades researching and forming global trade policy. He served as senior fellow on the global economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, which is where we met, and as adjunct professor of strategy at Northwestern Kellogg School of Business. Before that, Dr. Levy served twice at the White House on the President's Council of Economic Advisors, most recently as senior economist for trade, and was a member of the policy planning staff for another Stanford person, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. He has testified before numerous congressional and Senate committees and has written regularly for Forbes, The Hill, Foreign Policy. He's the author of Rebuilding a Bipartisan Consensus on Trade Policy. He has also taught global economic policy and international trade at Georgetown, Columbia, and the University of Virginia, and Yale. Phil, I always ask my guests how they first got interested in what became uh, their life's work. What attracted you to economics in general and trade policy in particular? I was always very interested in global affairs. It was, I liked history a great deal, seeing how countries would interact. And what gradually dawned on me was that maybe the most difficult part of this stuff to grasp uh, was economics and for the interaction that if you had a solid background in economics, you could read things that otherwise would just be very hard to access. Um, And so I, and it seemed like international trade really captured those interactions and was important to how countries dealt with one another. So I, I tooled up. Are you from California originally? No, I'm from or Wisconsin. Wisconsin, okay. Yeah. Packers fan. <laughs> there you go. Well, we won't talk about football then. All right. I think. <laughs> you know, I was on a call this morning, what you said reminded me, and one of the participants said, trade isn't what it used to be. And I thought there's a lot of truth to that, actually. Um, trade has become intertwined with national security in the environment, other geopolitical issues beyond commerce and economic development, really, which is, I think, when you and I started, that was pretty much 
the focus. And while the benefits have been diffuse, the costs have been concentrated, and this has caused issues, how do you see the evolution of trade in the bigger picture of the global economy today? I think you're right that we've maybe gone from thinking trade as a, as a predominantly commercial thing, and it's linked a lot more to whether it's national security or other facets of how countries interact. Um, I think the other thing that has changed a fair bit over time is that some of the lessons that we had learned painfully in the past got a bit stale and we forgot them. So you know, when I was coming up, one would still point back to, you know, the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act. I wasn't there for the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, but the, you know, the Tariff Act of, of 1930. I believe that. <laughs> yeah, the, the, but, but, you know, 1930. But it was, hey, look, we've tried isolationism. We've tried protection. We see how many problems there are that come with this. And I think after a while, you get to a point where those seem like ancient stories. And I don't know whether we you know, believe them as much anymore. And so we've been more recently going through a period where we have to rediscover some of the lessons. And we've been doing that. So some of that has to do with maybe new concerns, new connections. But it is really not that new that we link you know, national security concerns to, to trade policy. If you went back and looked at the 1970s and 1980s and things like you know, the Jackson-Vanik Amendment, we were linking you know, trade policy with, with uh, foreign policy you know, pretty ardently at the time. Um, but I think now we've been relearning some of those messages. There is one thing which is really quite different, which is the sort of more extensive nature of integration that you have now. That if you were talking about, if we were having this conversation in the 1950s, for example, and we wanted to talk about what trade looked like, it would look a lot more like exchanging finished goods right. back and forth. Whereas, not even services. <laughs> no, and not, not services yeah. very much. Mostly finished goods. And you couldn't really do an awful lot of just-in-time inventory if you wanted to because it was expensive to move stuff. It was expensive to communicate. It wasn't done as much. There was some movement in intermediate goods. If you'd have you know, sort of a big, say, natural resource you know, economy exporting something and somebody else would use it. But nothing like what we've seen in recent decades, where it can really be that you take a product like you know, the phones we carry in our pockets, and they're really, we are not capable of making them in any one country in an economically feasible fashion. And that's because of that development, where it's different people do different parts. Somebody does the glass, somebody does the design, somebody does the chips. And it's only by having that degree of specialization that these things become economically feasible. I think it's really important to have that, uh, the viewpoint of economic history yeah. in mind when people say these things. And I think you're right. People have forgotten the lessons yeah. of the past. So. I'm hoping that you can help our listeners unpack the connections that you just talked about between trade, especially inflation now. How has uh, trade influenced that or vice versa? The environment, supply chains, productivity as well. Um, how do you pull all of those pieces, including labor, together to create a cohesive sort of vision of how the world is, is interacting together? Yeah, that's a lot. I, I would suggest we do it. It's step a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's good. I like the ambition. But let's do it step by step. And Great. 
So what I might start with is what I think has been the headline recently, which is inflation, supply chain, you know, reliability, resiliency. Um, how did this all come together in the wake of the, the onset of the of COVID-19 pandemic? Um, I think one of the things, there have been two narratives that people have put forward. Uh, in my book, there's the right one and the wrong one. But, but that's not how they refer to them. I think they, they tend to think one is supply chain failure and one is demand surge. I think the most popular argument has been supply chain failure. I will argue for demand surge. But let me say what each of these is in terms of what we think happened. Yes. So yeah. the, the supply chain failure story goes like we had a pandemic. It imposed lots of costs. You had people, you know, either at factories who couldn't work there, truckers who couldn't move goods, um, ports that might have closed or, or worked at lower capacity. This resulted in a shortage of goods. We didn't have as many, you know, semiconductor chips. Uh, we didn't have as many cars as we wanted. And with those shortages, you saw prices get bid up. And this was largely the kind of thinking that was behind the, the transitory descriptions of inflation. Because the idea was, if it had gotten temporarily broken like that, well, then surely either time would heal this, time or vaccines or, or, or the like, um, or we would go in and we'd fix some particular thing that was broken. And once those obstructions were removed, then you'd have the free flow of goods again, there'd be ample amounts, and, and prices would go back down. And I think there was actually a lot of policy based on that idea. Um, Absolutely. I don't think that fits the facts. So, and, mm -hmm. I, and I'll present a, a couple of facts, which I think are particularly salient. If you look at how much Americans consumed of, um, of goods, and let's focus for the moment on durable goods, because that was the most extreme case. And you look at durable goods consumption, and you compare... February of 2020, right on the eve of the pandemic onset, with, say, the spring of 2021, real goods consumption, real durable goods consumption, went up by 35%. Why? Well, so that's, that's another question. I'll get to that one in just a second. But the first thing okay. to note is, normally when we think about you know, a supply obstruction, you think that you're going to be consuming less of something. So I, I was making a claim that things were inconsistent because how do you say there's been a huge supply disruption and yet we consumed 35% more? It doesn't. It doesn't really doesn't add up. Can, and there's, no. a, there's another mm -hmm. version of this where you say, well, okay, that's fine. Maybe that was the domestically produced stuff that came through. If you look at what happened to real imports into the United States, they were up by roughly 6 or 7% a year each of the last couple of years. So we've seen more stuff coming through ports. It's increased volumes. Um, again, it doesn't really fit with the story of we were going along just fine, and then all of a sudden things broke down and we paid a high price for it. So to me, what this argues for is there was a surge in demand. And I'll give you two reasons. First, what we normally think happens in a recession, in a downturn, is people have less money in their pockets. It's almost how we define a downturn, right? There's less exactly. income. Mm -hmm. this, that didn't happen here. 
if you look they at- They had more. They had more, <laughs> Actually. exactly. No, you're exactly mm-hmm. right. If you compare sort of the, from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, you know, personal income accounts, look at where we were in March of 2020. We have not, any month since that, gotten back down to that number in real terms. So incomes went up. A lot of that had to do with government transfer programs. There were aggressive moves, things like the CARES Act, the American Recovery Program, but it put money in people's pockets. So unlike what we would normally have expected in a downturn, people had more money to spend. And then there was the question of, well, what do you spend it on? And prior to the pandemic, people had been pretty consistent in how they divided their money between goods and services. The overall levels would go up and down, but the balance between goods and services, roughly, we were a 70% services economy, 30% goods economy. Well, the pandemic put light to that. Exactly. That's exactly what happened, which is the pandemic came along and we saw things that had been constant all along, all of a sudden, big shift. And that shift was more goods, fewer services. We were still consuming more services than goods, but that balance shifted. So if you look at what happened to goods demand, first, you have more money in people's pockets. And second, for any given dollar that somebody's going to spend, they were spending more of it on goods. So both durables and non-durables went up after an initial dip, went up really significantly. So So you can't go to the movies, so you buy a new TV. That's right. You can't go to the gym, so you buy some home exercise equipment. And you you can't go to the bakery, you get a bread machine. You you can go down the list. Substitution. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, you know, that's what people did a great deal. And so we saw this really big demand. And what I would say is to sort of tie this back to inflation we have long thought, this is not a controversial statement, that there's speed limits of sort on, on economic growth. If There's a reason why people say, you know, even ambitious politicians will talk about, you know, 4% growth in a year, not 15% growth in a year. Because the idea is, if you push an economy too fast, how do you do that? How do you get enough people to hire? And you start bidding for workers and wages go up and resources are short and people are having to work third shifts. And there was always this idea, and when you heard a term like the natural rate of unemployment, economists would sometimes call that the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, that if you tried to push too much, costs would go up and prices would go up. Now, we often talked about that for an economy as a whole, but you could also get that if you try to have one sector accelerate much faster than everything else. So the speed limit should apply in each sector. So if you say, I want to consume, you know, 10% more goods than I was consuming, that same speed limit applies because you can't, it's difficult, and we proved how difficult it was, to shift the resources from the services sector and immediately have them there in the goods sector trying to produce goods. Um, so that was a real constraint, and we hit up against that constraint. And I think that's a lot of what led to prices going up and inflation. So you're a policy guy. What should have been the policy? And given that we can't change what should have been, what if you were the USTR, what would you do now? Or what do you think well, is not di- happening? There's a whole bunch of different policymakers involved in this. So we had the Fed exactly. setting the monetary mm-hmm. policy. We had Congress and, and the White House trying to set what was happening with fiscal policy. And then we've got USTR. 
you actually fed me the easiest of all of these, um, which is the U.S. What should USTR do? Which is right. they're long overdue to get rid of the the tariffs that we did on on China under the Trump administration. Um, right, that's the Peterson report. Yes, that, well, the uh, Peterson report yes. does this, and the you know the initially the argument that was put forward for these was that they would alter Chinese behavior. These were a useful bargaining chip, um, a lever that would move Chinese positions. To my knowledge, there's zero evidence that that has worked. In fact, it's worked in the negative. You can to argue make that them want to be more self-reliant. You can make that you can make that argument, but I think it has. There's almost there were. I think there were some legitimate concerns that were motivating this, and I'm, I don't argue for removing these because you know China has done everything the U.S. has wanted or met every concern, but they don't seem to have been at all effective. And our and our current U.S. trade rep will still make this argument that she needs this as a, as a lever a lever that doesn't work and that also inflicts pain on the U.S. is not a terribly good lever. Um, and I think that's the other thing that ended up as actually a surprise to academic economists coming out of those with those tariffs, which is the estimates that we had before President Trump applied them were that if you ask about the incidence of a tariff, who actually pays it in the end? The most of the estimates had that this would be kind of split between China and the United States. And if you want to have a mental image um, of what we mean by incidents, let me just say you got some ten dollar good you're bringing in. You're going to slap a dollar tariff on it. Um, this may not be how we do it most of the time, but it'll make the explanation easier. So, if if you had something where, say, the Chinese price now there's going to be a dollar gap between what the Chinese receive and what the Americans pay. If the Chinese price fell to $9, you, you added the dollar and the American price stayed at 10 that would be the incidence falling entirely on China. If you had it where the Chinese price fell to $9.50 and the American price were $10.50, they were kind of splitting the pain, that would be the 50-50. That was roughly what we expected. What we actually saw was much more where the Chinese price doesn't change and almost everything is paid by Americans. This whole thing's been a, the greatest natural experiment. In economics, right? Including the pandemic. <laughs> it, I think this gets into the category of relearning some of those old lessons that, that we talked about. Um, but, but, the, but that was a bit of a surprise. And some of the people who had done the academic work behind this, said they were surprised that um, there was some reason to think that the incidents would fall in China, but in practice, it didn't as much, which meant that effectively, this was the U.S. taxing itself and saying to the Chinese, we're not going to stop taxing ourselves till you do what we want. And if you put it that way, maybe it's not such a surprise that the Chinese um, did not uh, jump to accommodate. Well, overall, what the Peterson Institute said was that if uh, tariffs were overall reduced by 2%, it would re result in a 1.3% fall in the overall inflation rate as well. Yeah. I don't know if you agree with that, but what are the political constraints against doing oh. that, even if it would have this wonderful effect on inflation. So let me first talk about the economics and then the politics, because they're both important here. There is an objection that a lot of economists would make to that Peterson type of argument, which is that they think of inflation as a flow, as something that sort of has to do with monetary policy. And so something like a one-off price cut should not really be thought of as a measure to combat this ongoing inflationary policy. 
I think the trick, though, is we come back to what we talked about as our base case, which is if you believe that there was a one-off shock that's going to pass, then doing a one-off response makes a lot more sense. And, and in fact, it's still the case, even though the Fed doesn't use the word transitory anymore, that their, their statement of economic projections, their forecast of what's going to come, largely shows inflation going down on its own. So they're still assuming transitory. If that's the case, if you think this was a, a one-time shock, then a one-time remedy fits perfectly. Now, let's come to the question about what are the politics? What impedes that? I think there is serious concern on both sides of the aisle about a number of a range of Chinese practices. And politically, I don't think either side, uh, whether it be Democrats or Republicans, wants to be caught in the position of looking like they are soft on China. And therefore, we have something of an impasse, which I don't think serves the American people very well. In an election year, in a very and important yes, election year. Yes, one would year. note that, yes, mm-hmm. there's a looming election. That's so right. that's basically what's going on in Washington uh, today. And I think so. And, I, and look, I won't, I think there are a number of people who legitimately believe, or they sincerely believe, let me put it that way, that they need this stuff for leverage. And that I, I think, you know, I take Ambassador Tai at her word when she says she really wants these things because she thinks she's going to achieve stuff with it. I don't doubt her sincerity. I just doubt the analysis that I don't think there's any evidence that this works. Right. So tariffs, um, if we can go from tariffs to sanctions right. and the effect that they have had on uh, the economy. I uh, listened to Vladimir Putin's speech at the St. Petersburg Economic Forum. And basically he says that the G7 has created mistrust through these sanctions and that we're going to bifurcate, that the sanctions haven't been effective. And actually, in some ways, you know, he's right about that because of, of uh, the upper hand that the Russians have with energy. Um, I think their currency is strengthened by 40 percent uh, since all of this happened. Uh, is, do you think that he's right? Have, have sanctions been effective or ineffective or are they going to create mistrust in other countries, um, in uh, developing countries, where they'll worry about what the United States might do to them if they do something that politically the U.S. doesn't like? And will we create a kind of polarization, a bifurcation in the trading world because of, of the actions that the U.S. took voluntarily against Russia? Yeah. So first, I would note that with the sanctions, this has not been the U.S. unilaterally doing this. This no. has been a concerted the effort. The EU as well. The EU yes. as well. And, and so this, this has been a, a sort of The joint G7 effort. countries. That's right. And yeah. so and it's important. that it be, And so one of the things that we know from a literature on, on sanctions, looking at a lot of episodes, um, is that they're more likely to succeed when it is broadly carried out as opposed to it's a unilateral sanction. I would note if you saw the China tariffs as sanctions, that was very much a unilateral measure. Um, big, That's right. Big Only the U.S. did that. Only the U.S. Mm-hmm. did that. And so there's a big distinction um, that we have here. It is also the case in that literature that you find that the more, the bigger the ask, the harder it is to achieve. So when you ask, have the sanctions been effective, there's an important question of effective at what? If it's pretty clear that if you sort of stated the objective as we want, you know, this, the conflict in Ukraine to be entirely resolved and we want to you know, return immediately to 
the situation ex ante, then no, that has not been achieved. Anyone can see that that hasn't been achieved. Um, if the objective was inflict economic pain and a degree and show a degree of disapproval, um, yes, I think some of that has been achieved. You're right that the ruble has strengthened. I think there was also some really significant tightening of Russian monetary policy. Exactly. That, that went into that, and that's painful. And you've seen large pullouts of foreign investment. So um, I think, and, and you've also, you know, the, the U.S., the, this was true back when I was in the State Department. The U.S. had expressed concern to, to Germany, for example, about um, some of the pipelines that it was setting up with Russia. And, and were these going to create a dependence and, and should it worry about these things? Um, I think you've had a rethinking of a lot of that. And, and that has been a, a significant thing. So, uh, you know, whether it's been effective is going to depend on your measure. If, if you honestly thought that sanctions were going to reverse all military actions in a period of months, you probably hadn't been paying attention to how sanctions have worked. Because we, we don't have any really good example of that ever happening in the past. Um, but I think the, I think it did have an effect, and people can judge for themselves whether that measured up to their expectations beforehand. Are we going to get a fractured trading system? I think, well, we were heading towards a fractured trading system anyways because of a number of these other measures. I, I'm very worried about that. I think it's important that we do things to sort of reconstitute the World Trade Organization. If you'd like to become a supporter of EconView and the Hale Report, please visit our website and become a subscriber. Well, the, let's go to Geneva well, and talk Geneva. about that. So I yeah. think mm -hmm. one of the great values of the World Trade Organization was not what people often thought, which is that it goes out and forces everybody to do the right thing. It was more that it offered some clarity about what were legitimate actions and what were illegitimate actions, and it gave a degree of sort of predictability to the system and, that, and people therefore thought they could rely upon it if it were more predictable. So if you said, I think somebody, you know, we've reached an agreement that certain behaviors are not permitted, and then somebody does it anyways, and then you get retaliation, it prevented a spiral where things got out of control. And it said, look, we're not deviating, we're just following and enforcing the rules, and this was all authorized. We've had a bunch of breakdown that way. I don't think that the conflict in Ukraine is going to be the major uh, divisive force that leaves us with a fractured global trading system. I think that's going to have much more to do with people sort of pursuing their own things. Um, you, you, by the way, you have one of the tricks also is that the WTO was much less um, comprehensive in its dictates than people think. So you would have uh, things like a national security exemption where you could do things if you thought this came to national security. These kind of issues are far closer to what was probably intended by that than some of the measures taken under the Trump administration under Section 232, which were tariffs on aluminum and, and steel, which are often applied against our close allies. Well, you know, I remember reading long ago various studies of trade organizations and bilateral and multilateral agreements. And the consensus was then that multilateral is much more efficient than a series of bilateral or regional agreements. But we seem to be devolving to that now. Um, what do you think about the Indo-Pacific economic framework, for example? Are these being formed because um, there's a vacuum at the WTO that they're trying to fill? I think um, 
the Indo-Pacific Economic Forum, well, I, I the... Just one example. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's a good example. I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. I think the Trans-Pacific Partnership was formed because there was some degree of vacuum at the WTO. There was a bit of an impasse. I think the Indo-Pacific venture has to do with the fact that um, for very odd reasons, the U.S. decided that it could not join the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So it came up with a substitute which does not meet the needs of many of the businesses with whom I've spoken. Right. That's, that's the issue. What, what worries me more on a global scale is the, the Fed, in order to counter inflation, is raising interest rates and the effect that this could have on sovereign debt. Um, Putin actually mentioned this in his speech, but I think actually he's right about this. Um, do you foresee that this will create a danger? I've asked people um, at the Fed and other and people who study Fed policy, and they just say, well, you know, there's forward gui- guidance. They shouldn't have borrowed so much money. But the reality could be really pretty catastrophic in terms of sovereign debt failure in order for these countries to buy grain instead, for example, or energy, which I would do as a politician rather than repay foreign debt. Do you think that this is an overrated danger or is it something that you worry about, Phil? I do worry about it. I think it's a very real danger. I think the Fed is in a difficult position here because exactly. they have a legal mandate and it's a dual mandate, but that's it. It's to look at price stability and full employment in the United States. Now, you can argue that there will be a bunch of feedback loops. And if they, you know, if you have crises in sub-Saharan Africa or elsewhere or, or South Asia, that that will ultimately come back. But when they say that their primary focus is price stability and full employment, that's because that's their legal mandate. That, that, that's what they're required to do. But it's a separate thing to say, is there a real danger with debt? And by the way, I, I think that that also extends to Europe. And I think we're starting to see that in conversations with Europe, that we've had a re, where you, you have debt concerns um, in some of the countries that we saw 10 years ago. Having, Italy and Greece. And, yes. Yeah. And, and I think you know, we've gone through an extended period of um, debt buildup that not coincidentally accompanied an extended period of very low interest rates. So all the time when you have very low interest rates, you can tell a country, no, 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 don't build up your debt because one of these days, you know, interest rates may go up and this will get to be very costly. But as you go year after year after year, those warnings just, in fact, we were hearing things like modern monetary theory and and others where someone would say, you know, that's all a thing of the past. In fact, even inflation is a thing of the past. We won't, we won't do that again. And so there's really no reason why we shouldn't borrow more because we need things, we want things, let's do it. It has been true all along. It, it remains true that if you build up very substantial debt, you are very vulnerable to increased interest rates. That Especially it, foreign denominated debt. Yeah. Both. I mean, whether mm-hmm. this, the, that layers on a whole nother bit of this. Yeah. So if, if, if you need to repay in dollars and that's not your currency and, you know, you get both interest rates going up and the dollar appreciating so that, you know, in local currency, those stack on top of each other. So you're needing to pay much more than you thought. But I would note that even if you get past that and you look at, say, things like just within euros, so you don't have the exchange risk. You were borrowing in euros. 
this, the difference between having you know negative half a percent as a policy rate and three percent. Well, if you're a country that has say 130 percent debt to GDP, and and then it takes a little time for this to phase in, but you go you know up to three percent, that you're dramatically increasing the amount of spending you have to do just to meet your debt payments, never mind all the things you really wanted to spend money on. And that tends to be the stuff of crisis. It, often these crises come on very quickly because it's, you, you think of it a bit like a game of musical chairs where everybody, you know, the music slows a little, no one wants to be the last one left standing. You, you, know, you make very quick moves to make sure you're not caught out. And that's what can sometimes happen is that you get the interest rates going up. Somebody looks at a country's situation, assesses, ooh, I don't think that's viable. I'm taking my money out. And the fact that everybody takes their money out. And they all do it. They all do it. They all do it very quickly, and it exacerbates the situation. And so this was the cla- a classic form of currency crisis. Right, which, which could ac- accelerate. And, you know, there's no real mechanism f- to deal with this. The pandemic was kind of a dress rehearsal. Because the IMF World Bank created a mechanism for countries to ask for a period of abeyance for repaying their debt. But I think um, only two actually um, took advantage of it because the other countries um, also are in debt to China. And the Chinese provisions of the loans aren't very transparent. But evidently, if they do anything like that, they would be in technical default and their Chinese debt would become due at the same time. So that's another, I think, danger coming up, that there is no World Bank IMF way of working this out or dealing with this, except maybe on a country-by-country basis. Yeah, I I won't speak to the sort of particulars, because I don't know them, of, of what the Chinese debt agreements were. I will say, yes. So one big challenge is, to the extent that someone has gotten themselves overly indebted, what are the adjustments you can make? You, could, you can have a write-down on the part of lenders. You can also have you know, drastically and often painfully altered behavior on the part of the borrower. And each of those is highly controversial. So what you were just referring to was the, difference, the difficulty in coordinating among lenders of is everybody going to take a haircut the same way you know, and, and share exactly. the pain? And mm-hmm. yes, there's, you've certainly heard lots of expressions of, you know, I don't want to lose money just so that they can be made whole. Um, those things definitely come up. The other problem with this, and one reason why countries haven't wanted to take advantage of IMF facilities, for example, is they usually come with strings attached. That if you look at somebody who's been engaged in practices that now appear to be untenable, you'll say, well, I'm going to give you some money to get out of that, but you really have to change your practices. Countries tend to be very enthused about the get the money part and not very enthused about the change your practices part, because that's politically painful. And, and I don't mean to sort of belittle it by saying politically painful. This is often real pain, where it is, you know, they were doing these programs because they had needy parts of the population, and they're having to make, you know, difficult choices, or maybe they have to raise taxes. Like Greece. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. they have to raise taxes in a way that's painful and that, you know, stymies business. So they don't, none of these things look very attractive. Um, this is not just sort of people who are venal and, and looking out for their political careers. But it has meant that there's not an, and of course, there's also always a stigma attached to, I'm letting some, you know, international bureaucrat tell me what I'm supposed to do. Where does that fit in with my conception of sovereignty? 
And then the, the classic response would be um, devaluation as well. But in Europe, that's not an option for those individual countries. I, what do you think about what could happen in the EU because of that imbalance? I think that this, this is a serious concern. And you're exactly right that, that for many countries, it's, you know, you, you devalue. Um, there was a, when, when the European Monetary Union came into effect, there had been what seemed to be some fairly strong strictures against lending to individual countries and funding their debt. Um, there was a time, I'm trying to remember the exact year, but something like eight to 10 years ago, when there was a crisis and the then head of the European Central Bank said, we'll do whatever it takes, and they would jump in. You've recently had something of a reaffirmation of that stance, which is as interest rates started to go up, you started, the thing that everybody focuses on for those who, who don't do that, they call it spreads. So it's one thing when interest rates go up as a whole, it's another when you start to see a bigger and bigger gap between what, say, Germany pays on its debt and what Italy pays on its debt. And that growing spread tends to be a sign of investors trying to get out of Italian debt. And that can be, as we talked about, the kind of um, self-fulfilling problem. Because as people move out, that means bond prices drop, interest rates go up, and then that just sort of things get even less tenable, and, and it goes on like that. I think you've recently had a statement from the European Central Bank that they will continue going in and, and purchasing national debt in those instances where they need to for stability. The problem then gets to be, how does this get to be something other than just printing money without limit? And how can you then credibly say, this is an unsustainable path, we need to get off it. And the reason that had been worked into the sort of founding principles of, of the European Monetary Union in the first place was because you had countries like Germany that had memories of hyperinflation and the idea that a government would go spend whatever it wanted and you just print money to cover they had seen that end in unfortunate ways before. And, and another interesting case is Japan uh, and what's going on there. And they're not really experiencing that much inflation there. And um, But they are deciding to, they've enacted a new economics program, which would require companies to give their plans about exporting and investing overseas and really involves the government in pretty much everything to do with international trade there. Uh, what do you think about that? And will that create special cost on the Japanese economy that wasn't there before and make it more difficult for them to compete maybe with China, for example? Yeah, I, a few thoughts. So one, I'm not sure that Japan is competing very directly with China. I mean, if you look at the the nature of the things they produce, they tend to be at sort of very different ends of the scale when it comes to the sophistication of products. It's changing, but I think that's not as much their concern. I, but I do think that the functioning of the Japanese economy is very important. I think that some of what you're referring to marks a broader trend where we're turning towards industrial policy. Um, and there's more of a sense that get the government involved. Um, I broadly think that we don't have good historical examples of that working well. And we have plenty of historical examples where, um, where that can lead people astray and it can lead them into costly endeavors that, you know, maybe a more market oriented approach might have avoided. Um, so I think it's concerning 
and then I think we see it's a, it's a more more developed version of what we, I think we're hearing talked about in the United States, where there's this idea. I think you do have certain things that are well established where governments have concerns, where you have say you know very sensitive technology, and is that technology shared and export controls like that? I think the danger comes when one starts a um, sort of using terms like what's a strategic industry where it becomes a very broad descriptor that can cover anything from, you know, grains to technology to ball bearings. Because as you go down the list, you think, well, what would my economy be without ball bearings? How would we survive? <laughs> Clearly that's strategic. And um, one prominent economist, when we had debates like that in the 80s, sort of said, you know, wouldn't this be quicker if we could sort of agree on the handful of industries that weren't strategic? Because almost everything else gets covered by this. Um, I think there's, there's also a misapprehension, this idea that, look, as long as something is made domestically, then you never have to worry about that. I would say, tell that to the mothers who are um, highly concerned about the shortage of baby formula right now. Right. Because there's mm -hmm. an example of something that mostly through regulation, it, we're not the only ones in the world in the United States who make baby formula, um, nor are we the only ones with high standards. I think the European standards for health are generally pretty high. But we've set up regimes whereby it's very either expensive or nearly impossible to import stuff. So therefore, we're on our own. It means that when you have, you, you actually become more vulnerable, not less vulnerable, because when you have problems with, say, a given plant in Michigan, all of a sudden you end up with a shortage in a way that, and, and we end up with the, uh, curiously enough, the White House discovering international trade and suggesting that it could fly military planes to uh, bring formula from Europe. Um, I think there's <laughs> other ways to get formula from Europe that are probably less costly and you know more dependable, but... It's, I think this is all... Well, it became a political issue. Of yeah. course it did. But I think mm -hmm. the, the point is, it does belie the idea that as long as something is made domestically, then you have reliability. And I, I don't think that's Things should, happen. Things, yeah. things, things happen, happen. And the question is, where does the shock come? That right. if all shocks came from abroad, okay, then fine, then doing stuff domestically. By the way, baby formula is a recent and prominent example, but toilet paper was another one. You know, the, the toilet right. paper shortage that we had at the beginning of the pandemic, that was not because our supplies got cut off. We weren't importing toilet paper from China. What it really had to do with was how quickly could we, you know, convert from making the big rules that go into buildings to the small rules that go into houses, which is a costly conversion, which essentially means setting up machines a new way. But in the end, we did end up mitigating to some small extent that crisis by importing, where we were able to get, you know, more rules from other places. Um, such as Mexico. So I think, uh, yes, it's a political thing, but it also serves to illustrate that this fundamental premise that we will have you know, security and reliability if only we just make everything at home is fundamentally flawed. Right. So instead, what you would say, I, I'm, I'm thinking, is that we need resiliency and redundancy for when things happen and go wrong. I... I think that we need some of that. We need to think about this. I think it's, it's worth keeping in mind. Um, you know, let, let me do an analogy, which is think about you know, your listeners and their everyday lives. How much insurance do they buy? You know, they, people usually get life insurance, homeowners insurance, auto insurance. Um, do you take out insurance against a rainy day that might you know, ruin your clothes as you're walking down the streets of Chicago? 
No, probably not. It's, it's a big thing to do. It could happen, and you actually could lose, you know, an expensive pair of shoes or, you know, use some favorite piece of electronics. And, but no, that's not really developed. How do you just – there is a parallel there with what we think about when we talk about businesses and having redundancy, which is they're taking on an expense, and it is very much like buying insurance. And so whether we think of this as sort of maintaining large inventories – or maintaining multiple sources, you know, in different places where you're simultaneously managing them, you take on a fairly significant cost. And if anything, over the decades, the pressure has been people want those costs down, not, and, and there's a question of how much people are willing to pay for that. So, is, you know, is it now, if you had, if you had gone out and bought that, you know, rain insurance, and there was a deluge, and you do this, you'd feel really good about things. But, and, and you know, asking whether you want to do that the day after deluge, you're probably going to have a lot more people who say, yeah, yeah, that's right, I'll sign up for that because I'm not going to have that happen to me again. Over time, you may think, you know what, maybe I'll, you know, get a bigger umbrella or, or just do something less costly and figure this out. I think we're, we have to do that kind of thinking with supply chains. That it's about evaluating, evaluating and pricing risk. Exactly. That's what you're saying. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. So try, that's mm-hmm. exactly right. Trying to think about, you know, sort of where's risk going to come from? Um, wh- how serious is risk? This has been a very hard thing to do, by the way. I mean, trying to predict the, you know, the pandemic and, and all of this and, and how much of an effect it's going to have, extraordinarily difficult. And it's extraordinarily difficult going forward to know how much of this we have. I would say... We do not have any economically viable model for complete self-sufficiency. If we think that we're going to have all of the you know, electronics and automobiles and, and things that we've come to value and that we're not going to be at all reliant on you know, foreign inputs, people are not paying attention to how modern production works. And in China, the government there is not either. They also have the same mantra for self-sufficiency. It does seem to be a popular. It's in vogue. Thinking mm-hmm. this it's in these vogue, days. exactly. So, so, but I think I think that's the trick. Is that what we really have to do is to find out ways to make global trade easy for everyone. Ways to make sure things are reliable. That you can, you know, sort of. Yes, of course, it's going to be the case that some suppliers are more trustworthy than others. Um, these things have to be sort of weighed one against the other. Um, but, but that's, I, I won't sign on to a sort of, uh, to a blank check on, yes, let's have redundancy and, and durability because right. that's essentially saying I'm going to buy a lot of insurance, you know, and you could tell me the price later. And it's too expensive. It yeah, might be. Is what you're saying. Maybe. It might be too expensive. Yeah. yeah. So what's the way out of this thicket, Phil, you know, too, especially for example, maybe the greatest example is U.S.-China trade yeah. relations right now. How we don't share the same values, but we do share the same interests. And I think if we went completely our separate ways, it would be, it for the average person in China or the United States, it would not be a positive thing. Um, so how do we how do we square everything? The economic interests with the political values. Where do you see that relationship going? Yeah, this this is a critical question. Big a, question. A big question. <laughs> yeah, I have I'm answer, sorry. <laughs> I have the answer written right here in the margin. That I no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I, I think uh, so. The one. Let me just at first say one thing that I want an answer to include. That whatever the answer might be, it should include a viable vision of how the global economy works. And I don't think we've actually had that in almost anything I've seen put forward for U.S. policies towards China, which is. 
the part that we can be pretty certain of is the U.S. will be the number one economy in the world. China will be the number two. So you got the two biggest economies in the world. They're going to coexist. So now we can talk about things like, do they have investment between them? Do they allow trade? What happens if that trade is you know, Chinese parts making their way into Southeast Asian production or into European production? And then you know, do we allow that? But somewhere at the end of this, there has to be a viable model and a picture of the whole thing. To me, that's an absolute minimal requirement. We're not meeting that right now. I think at the moment, what we tend to do is say, I will, I'm frustrated by a number of actions. I'll feel better if I lash out. There, I lashed out and now I feel better with almost no evidence that this has taken us to a better place. So I think that would be the starting point is, is that we require of people putting forward solutions, at least demonstrate that it might actually be a solution and that this is not just venting frustration. I think that's a lot to ask. <laughs> right it, it may be, but I think if we don't do <laughs> that, then we're not we getting did. anywhere. Uh, and exactly. So, and I think that's why we aren't. <laughs> well, and I think it's a reason why we aren't. And I think ultimately we're going to have to relearn some of those lessons that we had from long ago about sort of the self-defeating nature of protection in almost all instances. Um, and then we're going to have to work towards setting rules that work for the United States. I mean, I say this as someone coming from the United States. Each country has to do this, but that was the importance right. of the WTO. And it is, you know, when we, and at the moment, the U.S. really is not terribly involved in international rule setting. By declaring that we were going to sort of have sovereignty and turn our backs in this, whether it's through things like the TPP or the WTO, rules are being set. They are being de facto applied to the United States. If you talk about, I'll give you an example, talk about things like, you know, how do we approach privacy and, you know, digital privacy? Europe. Well, that's the point is that because mm -hmm. this is not being settled through international agreements, you get a country like, uh, or an economic region like Europe that, that moves forward on something like this. And then those become the de facto standards. Where was our voice? And we have in GDPR. This? Right. We that's didn't, right. So where was our we're voice? Affected. Now, of course, I live in California and California tries to compete with them on this. But, but the point being, that the U.S. Has, has essentially left the table and is therefore having to take whatever's handed to it by others. And that's also true with some of the trade rules with things like the TPP. Um, hopefully at some point soon we recognize that the U.S. actually has a lot more power to lead and to make sure that we get solutions that work well for us, but it does require that we engage and it requires that we be reliable. And so I'm more hoping... More constructive I'm engagement. hoping that's the direction we move. Me too. Me too. Very much so. So, Phil, what's next? A lot of people are worried about a recession. Are you real concerned about that? Do you think that we'll get over this hump? If you buy my argument, which is that this has been predominantly a demand problem and that demand has been driving prices higher, the trick then is you need to do something to curb demand. And we are doing something in the sense that we're no longer sending checks out the way we were. But if you look at monetary policy, the thing that one ought to be looking at a monetary policy is what is the real interest rate? What is, if you, for example, let's take the Fed funds rate and subtract even their most modest measures of inflation. They have one that they like called trimmed mean PCE. Even if you do that, you're currently at something like a negative 3% real interest rate. The Fed itself will tell you that a 0 to 1% real interest rate is what they see as neutral. So we're not even at neutral yet for the Fed. Um, I guess my preference would be more of a rip the bandaid off approach, which is 
you take this on sooner rather than later. I think the problem is as we get inflation expectations more embedded, they get harder and harder to root out. And I would argue that we had a recent report on the consumer price index. Perhaps the most alarming element of that report was if you looked at what happened to the prices of shelter, um, which may sound like, okay, I'm digging deep down into the report. That actually accounts for roughly a third of the weight. So if you think about what people do with rents, and if I recall correctly, it was up something like 5.5% year to date, or not year to date, over the past year. If you look even at the monthly numbers, it was going up by something like 0.5% a month, but it was 0.6% in the most recent month that they reported. In other words, it's accelerating. Um, Why is that worrisome? Again, it really doesn't match with this supply chain breakdown story. That's not what's setting rates. It's something that a lot of people are affected by, and it starts to look like inflation that has really settled in at the 5.5% level and maybe going up from there. So I think it's, it's not going to be fun, but what we need to do, there was a reason why we targeted 2% inflation, because as it goes up and persists, it makes life difficult for a lot of people. And in fact, I would argue it probably has much more negative effect on people at the lower end of the income scale that they're, they're less well-equipped to, to do the kind of things that you might do to defend yourself against inflation. And the longer we postpone it, I don't think it's a viable option to say, let's ignore it and hope it goes away. And so the longer we postpone it, the more painful that, that, that job is in the end. And what we really don't want to do is get ourselves in the position we were in when I was in you know, high school or middle school, whichever, I think middle school maybe, that you know, we had you know, inflation in the double digits and you ended up having fed the Fed funds rate moving up, you know, at or near twenty percent. Um, that is that is a potential and a very worrisome outcome if you postpone this, the action too long. So I'm I'm heartened to see the Fed moving relatively quickly with something like a seventy five basis point increase that they did, and that apparently they're contemplating for July. Right, and and. Beyond that, probably we'll have to see. Although what comes I think next. Mark, yeah, I think markets think it end at the end of this year. But it, it's so we can't create more supply. We have labor constraints, all kind other kinds of constraints. So we have to curb demand, is what you're saying. We can create supply. It doesn't come that fast. Um, and you know, some of the things that you know, if you want to think about labor, we could have a more permissive immigration policy. We don't. Um, the and. For the others, you know, for another part, of course, you could invest, you could build more machines and more factories and the like. That's problematic because if you think the demand's about to drop because you're doing some of these things, um, then you know, doing a big investment just when some when demand's going to drop is unappealing for businesses. You get back to how difficult it is to forecast. So I think it, it probably comes down much more to you know, let's get and of course, international trade is another form of supply where you can bring things in at a reasonable price, we could get rid of tariffs. So I don't want to suggest there's nothing we can do there. Those would be good things to do, good things to address, but we need to um, get demand under control. So maybe necessary, but not sufficient to solve this issue. So um, for our listeners, Phil, where can they go to find out more information about what you write? I'm sure a lot of them will want to read more about what you have to say. Um, would that be on the Flexport website? I know you have a lot of research there. Is that accessible? 
Yes, the Flexport research is very accessible. My my political opinionating a little bit less so these days. But the um, <laughs> there they have to go listen to your podcast. But the uh, but for the research, you can go to flexport.com slash research. And we have a range of indicators that go from, say, measuring how bad is the supply chain crisis? What are we forecasting in terms of are people going to turn back from goods to services? We put all this stuff up there along with a whole range of commentary, including on things like what has sanctions done and, and how effective have they been. And is there a hidden resource other than, than your own on trade that you really love and depend on that most people, there's, there's so much information out there. It's, it's hard for people to know where to go. Is there something that you really enjoy reading, an indicator or data of some sort? Yeah, on trade, it's hard. I, you mentioned earlier some work that the, the Peterson Institute has done. I'm, I'm a big admirer of theirs. I think they put out excellent policy research. They, they have vigorous debates. If you want to even look to see you know, people very conflicting arguments about monetary policy, the Peterson Institute published both sides and got some outstanding people to do this. Um, it's, it's a lively discussion, and it's hard to sort through. I don't know that there is a single place that, right. I, that I could right. refer you to, but th- there is some very good stuff out there. Well, Phil, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been wonderful talking to you, very thought-provoking. And I know people can follow you on Twitter as well. What is your Twitter hand? I follow you, but I don't remember. Is it yeah, Phil that's Levy? right. It's, it's Philip I. Levy. Um, I use my middle okay. initial on that one. So yes. One L or it. two? Uh, one L and Philip. Ardently okay. one L. Yes. Ardently went out. Well, this okay. is the, the guy who's currently director of the Congressional Budget Office, used to be my boss at the Council of Economic Advisors. His name is Phil Swagel, and he's in this bizarre, demented 2L camp. And so we would argue about what the appropriate way was <laughs> to spell Phil or Philip. So um, well, he's, 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 except for that, he's a good guy, except for his, okay. his uh, horrific misspelling of his name. So, um, and people can also find you on LinkedIn. With, with one L, if they search for one L. Same spelling. You'll be there. That's right. Okay, so. wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be posting your podcast and also links to everything that we've discussed today so people can, can delve in a little more um, deeply to that. And thank you as well to the people behind the scenes here at EconView who make this possible. Our managing editor, Ying Zan, and our producer, Sam Fu. Please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. Thank you. Thanks very much.